Coming up, is technology making your job easier or is it just making your employer richer? Is the internet about to slow down? And Providence lands another big company. It's Wednesday, the second best day of the week. This is Steve Tushankel, and you're listening to the New England Tech Podcast. This week, the New England Tech Podcast is brought to you, as ever, by Hammerhead Content Management Solutions. For media organizations and content creators, you love to write, so why do you hate to publish? Visit us at hammerheadcms.com. That's H-A-M-M-E-R-H-E-D-C-M-S.com. Music in this show is by Kurt Baker, Lame Drivers, Monkey Mind, The Pharaohs, and The Barracudas. We were off last week for the Thanksgiving holiday, and I certainly hope that everybody out there had a very pleasant Thanksgiving, certainly one of my favorite holidays, perhaps my favorite holiday, one of the only holidays that's focused on food, and you have to like that. The only better thing would be a holiday that's focused on technology. That actually probably wouldn't even be as good as a holiday that's focused on food. Food is really the way to go, right? I should probably start a food podcast at some point while I'm at this. So I spent my Thanksgiving in Michigan. A lot of people go out of town for Thanksgiving. I am one of those people. My in-laws live in Michigan, so we tend to spend it with them. We don't every year, but most years we do. And unfortunately, when you want to reach Michigan from New England, you really have to fly unless you have a great deal of time on your hands and you wish to drive or bike or walk, which you could technically do. But we flew. And we flew Delta Airlines. Now, Delta Airlines is the only airline in the world, this is true, that has ever lost my luggage. And they have lost my luggage repeatedly. They do it over and over and over again. And I think I literally mean over and over and over again because I think they've done it three times. Unless over and over and over implies four times, I don't know. Drop me a line and let me know. So we're flying Delta they lose my luggage and here's how it happened at the airport in detroit which we flew out of they put a baggage tag on our checked luggage we found out later after they did an investigation that that tag fell off the bag in detroit and therefore the bag never made it to the plane and did not make it to us in rhode island and as a product person, as a digital product person, who is very interested in technology, when something like this happens, I can't help but think, how could technology have improved this situation? Because the way you check baggage at an airport just seems so inefficient and so fraught with danger and potential issues. And it hasn't changed in decades, my whole life. Checking a bag at the airport has been exactly the same since the early 80s, which is probably as long as I can remember. It's been the same thing. It hasn't changed at all. Now, think about technology, right? Think about computers that you use, devices that you use, even TVs, things like that. You know, any electronics, basically. Any electronics has cha- have changed substantially since the early 80s, and yet checking a bag at the airport is not. Every process you can think of 
has changed substantially since the early 80s, and checking a bag at the airport has not. Think about even going to a fast food restaurant, going to McDonald's or Wendy's or Burger King, how that process has changed. It's different now. They keep refining, they improve it, but airlines have not. They haven't changed anything. And something that I love about technology and have always loved is how easy it is to change things. Not necessarily easy, right? I've been there. I don't know. I know it's not easy, but how how motivated people are to continue to improve processes and change. And airlines just don't have that motivation. Now, you can say airlines are tech companies too, right? But they're very old, traditional tech companies. They're very entrenched. And with the decline in competition among airlines, there's less incentive to improve. There's just less, less incentive. Why do I even fly Delta? You know, many years ago, Delta lost my bag and I vowed never to fly them again because they treated me so badly when they did it. But now I fly Delta because I don't really have a choice. What are you going to do? There's like three airlines. There's more than that, but there's three really major, major airlines in the United States. There's United, there's American, and there's Delta. There used to be a bunch more of them. So what are you going to do? No incentive to improve, no spirit of innovation. How would I improve baggage claims? Well, maybe you stick a chip on bags and they can be tracked, right? You'd think that might be prohibitively expensive, but maybe not. You know, you have little devices that you attach to the bags that always knows where they are, that checks whether they're on the plane and sends out an alert if they're not there, if they're not present on the plane, and then somebody goes and finds them, and you can reuse them. You don't need, you know, you may, maybe you need a few thousand, right? Maybe I'm drastically underestimating this. 10,000, something like this. But they don't necessarily have to be expensive devices. You just attach a little one, this little tracker, to a bag, and suddenly everybody knows where it is. But you are still stuck with this ancient technique of not necessarily associating a bag with a person, of sticking this sticker on it and just hoping that it gets there. What if the sticker falls off? The sticker fell off, right? Well, maybe you have a locking mechanism, making it virtually impossible to fall off as opposed to the sticker, which easily falls off. These are just things that I came up with sitting here. This is the improv, as I explained last week or last episode, the improv portion of my podcast, the pre the free form portion. I don't script this. I'm talking about what's on my mind at any given time, right? The rest of the show is a little tighter, but this is not. This is stuff I'm just coming up with here, and I've already come up with ideas that I think would greatly improve checking baggage at the airport. And I am not even in this industry. I know virtually nothing about airlines and airports, but even I can sit here and come up with something really quickly. Think about what people were actually paid to sit there all day and do this. Technologists can come up with. So I implore anyone out there who works for an airline, who's involved with an airline, think about this. I know that there's not much incentive because you've got clientele that is tied into your business that has no other additional options besides you. But the thing about technology is that there's this motivating factor of other people innovating, right? You don't necessarily have to innovate in technology, but you know that others are going to and you're going to be left behind. That's harder now. It's harder to translate to airlines because there are fewer of them, but there are, there, there are 
there are more than one. There's more than one airline. And there are younger, hungrier airlines, like smaller airlines, like JetBlue, for example. Southwest, very popular. These airlines have been innovative. Why doesn't someone come up with something better and maybe, just maybe, when that happens, if it happens, I will not lose my bags ever again and I can finally forgive Delta for the terrible, terrible things that they have put me through over the course of many years. It's that time again to check out what is in the news. First up this week and every week, the day of reckoning is coming for net neutrality. So late breaking news from last week, which we would have covered if we had done a podcast that week, but it is still equally valid. The FCC unveiled a plan last week for a vote on December 14th to potentially change net neutrality rules. Now, we have spoken about net neutrality a lot on this podcast. And the reason we've spoken spoken about it a lot is because it is tremendously, tremendously important to everybody listening, particularly if you're listening to this or any other podcast. This could affect you greatly. It could affect your life. It could affect your entertainment. It could affect your work. It could affect whatever you do on the internet, whatever you do. Net neutrality and repealing net neutrality rules has been the major cause of Ajit Pai, who is the FCC's Trump-appointed Republican chairman. He is a former executive at Verizon and throughout his tenure as a public figure has been outspokenly sympathetic to the big companies that want net neutrality rules reversed, companies such as as Comcast. Now, what is net neutrality? Well, you've probably heard a little about it. Maybe you've heard a lot about it. If you've been listening to this podcast, you've certainly heard about it. But there are people who are not aware of what net neutrality is. So I will give you an executive summary. I won't go too in-depth. But it is important to know. By regulation of the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission, and these regulations were created only a few years ago under the Obama administration when Democrats control the FCC, it is not permitted for an internet service provider to give traffic priority over other traffic. Now, what does that mean? That means that if you are watching Netflix, an internet service provider that you use to get your internet access has to give Netflix the same priority as it gives the New England Tech Podcast coming through. One cannot take precedence over the other. The FCC, and particularly Ajit Pai, would like very much to reverse that, and this has been a cause celeb of certain Republicans for many years. And I say certain Republicans because overwhelmingly, Democrats and Republicans, when you poll them, want to keep the current net neutrality rules and let the internet remain neutral. Let all traffic continue to be treated equally. But there are certain people out there who are, I don't want to editorialize too much, but I was going to say beholden to big business who say that that is not proper, that we cannot have regulation, that all regulation is bad. It's almost a religious thing. It's regulation. Regulation must be bad. 
corporations must be allowed to do whatever they want in an unlimited fashion. So they have been pushing for a very long time to reverse these rules. And finally, finally, they have the opportunity to do so. It's all part of a larger war on regulations. You may have heard if you followed the presidential campaign last year in 2016, Donald Trump talked a lot about regulations and how we wanted to do away with them. This is just one of the regulations uh, that's supposed to prevent the government from micromanaging the internet. The idea is that regulations can never protect people. They can only hurt people and businesses. Now, I happen to disagree with that. I think regulations can protect people. There are certainly bad regulations out there, but regulations by themselves, I would contend, are not a bad thing. But now we're in a place where there are almost religious objections to the mere idea of regulations and your access to the internet is going to fall victim to that. It is very, very likely, unless something changes quickly, that the FCC will vote on December 14th to change these rules. And there are reports that Comcast is already preparing to create fast lanes and slow lanes on the internet. They're already making moves to do this as a result of this impending rule change. Now, what is the rationale besides just being against regulations to reverse net neutrality? We want to give some credence to that, right? Well, one of the claims, and I find this quite interesting, is that telecom providers can't milk all the possible money out of the internet access they're providing, which prevents rural broadband expansion. Now, that may sound a little absurd to you. It certainly sounds absurd to me, right? Because there are plenty of ways in which companies could be allowed to profit that aren't beneficial. Um, the, all the money just goes to the same place, right? So all the money they have could be used to expand rural broadband penetration or not. If they're not doing it now, I don't know why they would in the future when just more money from a nebulous source uh, is coming in. But that, that is an interesting issue. And it is true that rural areas tend to have bad access to the internet. However, I personally don't think that this is a valid reason to reverse net neutrality rules. Now, here's where it gets a little interesting. We know that probably these rules will be reversed on December 14th. Some municipalities are preparing for that. Some municipalities know that this is going to be a problem and they are taking action to create their own neutral networks that are not connected to big companies. Last week, or actually two weeks ago, in fact, 19 towns in Colorado voted to start creating their own internet service providers, which would be treated as public utilities like electric companies, like gas companies. Some cities, such as Chattanooga, Tennessee, are already doing this to a significant degree of success, according to people who are there in the field. And privately, telecom providers, they're not talking about it, but they are said to be frightened of this move by cities. So the interesting thing is that net neutrality may accelerate these moves by municipalities that these telecom providers are so afraid of. The irony is that this could end up hurting the same or only people who are pushing the court most of all by this in the end. Everyone will end up getting better public internet access. The corporations will be harmed simply because they push to reverse net neutrality rules. And if that is not irony, I honestly don't know what it is. Isn't, isn't it ironic? 
don't you think? So really, in the end, the elimination of net neutrality rules will end up hurting literally everyone at some point. It may not end up hurting you ultimately because you may score with better internet access from your city or town or state even. Um, but in the end, somebody will be hurt by this no matter who they are. Next up, Virgin Pulse has announced that it is moving its global headquarters to Providence. Virgin Pulse is a digital healthcare company dedicated to B2B, business to business, business health applications for corporations, for companies. So if you're a company, you can uh, contract with Virgin Pulse and get your employees to stay fit using Virgin Pulse's applications. Now this move comes just two years after Virgin Pulse brought a Providence-based software company that made a similar product called ShapeUp, and only one year after Virgin Pulse's leadership announced that Governor Gina Raimondo of Rhode Island and ShapeUp founder Rajiv Kumar uh, had encouraged Virgin Pulse to both keep its Rhode Island office open and add around 300 jobs to its roster through 2021. This is just another example of how business in Rhode Island has really turned around and it is technology that is driving the train in Rhode Island. Everybody in New England knows about the economic struggles that Rhode Island has had, but that has really been turning around lately with such companies as Virgin Pulse, as General Electric. A squad Locker is a company in Warwick that's uh, that's expanding. That's a, an example of a smaller company. E-Money Advisor has moved into downtown Providence. So all these companies are very much driven by technology, and they're the ones that are opening and reviving Rhode Island's economy. Now, the CEO of Virgin Pulse um, explained why they are moving their headquarters to Providence. He said, and I quote, one, it's a pretty cool town. He said, we looked at our growth trajectory, our hiring plans. We realized we needed to be in a city. We immediately thought about Boston. Rajiv, that being Rajiv Kumar, the founder of Shape Up, which became Virgin Pulse, convinced me otherwise to come and look at Rhode Island. We have a front row recruiting seat to all the great universities here. And I just think that that is a great answer for the question of why you would want to relocate to Providence. Uh, Virgin Pulse was previously headquartered locally. They were headquartered in Waltham, Massachusetts, as many great companies are. There is certainly a lot of commerce over there. But young people, it's been proven over and over again, really want to be in cities. They want to work in cities. They want to live in cities. And that's the move that Virgin Pulse is making. And that is where Providence has really been able to profit. Because what's your other option? It's Boston. That's your other option in the region. Boston is prohibitively expensive. Providence is significantly more economical. And I think you're going to see more and more moves like this if Rhode Island's government is doing its job right. And there are probably a lot of people out there, particularly Rhode Islanders, who are skeptical that that's a possibility, that that could happen, that Rhode Island's government could work. But I believe in it. I think it can work. Now, the physical comp location of the company's uh, headquarters will be the old Providence Journal building, which is a 48,000 square foot space. So this is a pretty major operation. We said 300 jobs. It could potentially get a lot bigger. There's room to grow. There's room to expand. So congratulations to Virgin Pulse for making this move. Congratulations to Providence and Rhode Island 
for landing this. And we can only all hope, no matter where we live, no matter what our interest is, a rising tide lifts all ships. I firmly believe that. And we can only hope that this continues. And I have faith that it will. You like me, cause you go downhill. I, I have a question for you. What's your side hustle? Do you have a side hustle? Do you know what a side hustle is? Well, side hustle is a neologism, meaning a newly created term that has seeped its way into our culture for a little job that you've got on the side, something that makes you some extra money. It's not full time, doesn't make you all your money, hopefully. But it's something that can really provide you a little bit extra. Now, especially millennials have embraced the idea of side hustles. What is a side hustle, for example? Driving for Uber or Lyft. That could be a side hustle. Some people do it full time, but a lot of more people do it part time. Uh, there's a website out there called Fiverr where you can offer your your creative services in design or development, not necessarily even creative little jobs. The original idea was that they would all cost $5. Now they cost more than that sometimes, but they're still very economical. That's what side hustles are. And more and more people have them. It's all part of what is known as the gig economy. Now the gig economy is people who are working for themselves, right? Often enabled by a service such as Uber or Lyft or Airbnb or Teespring where you can create your own t-shirts often enabled by something like that, instead of a full-time job with a larger corporation. You're really using a service, but you're really working for yourself. Now, not every side hustle is part of the gig economy, right? But the gig economy does enable a whole lot of side hustles, such as the ones that I just talked about. And what do all these companies have in common that I just talked about? Uber, Lyft, Fiverr, Airbnb, Teespring. What are all of these? They're all technology companies. The gig economy is incredibly dependent on technology, probably like nothing of the same ilk before. No real economic trend, no real employment trend has been so dependent on tech, on digital. But the gig economy and side hustles, they are. They are. Companies like Uber and Airbnb could not exist without it. Try to imagine what it would be like. What would an Uber be like without an app? What would Airbnb be like without the Airbnb website and the ability to book online and list online? These are digitally native companies. They they don't make sense without digital. They don't exist without digital. They're not old-fashioned companies that already existed, that were founded in 1870 or 1950 or whatever, and have adopted technology as as time has gone on. These are fundamentally tech companies. They could not exist otherwise, and they do not exist otherwise. Now, most of us think of technology when we think of these sorts of companies as helping us as customers. If I want to stay in a new place and I don't want to deal with hotels, I want something more interesting, I want something more economical, Airbnb helps me, right? 
Most people think of technology as helping the customer in that sense, but it's equally important to people who are providing these services. For example, the ease of scheduling, ease of getting paid. Technology enables all of this. Now, of course, pretty much everybody's job is dominated by technology these days. I would be shocked if there is anyone out there listening whose job, whatever you do, is not dominated by technology. You don't have to work in tech to be ensconced in tech all the time. That's just the way it is in our modern world. But people who work in the gig economy are kind of on the leading edge of where things are going to end up going, right? If you want to see your future, if you want to sit down and think about what your job is going to look like in 10 years, look at what an Uber driver does. Look what look at what an Airbnb host is doing. The whole native idea of technology, the, the idea of technology being native, right, is what I'm trying to say. That I think is going to work its way into so many other careers as well. So maybe, you know, you sit at a desk all day and you send some emails and you attend some meetings in person. Well, that might change, right? Everything may ultimately be online and may be done online and you'll, you'll have to be very good at these applications and very, uh, very fluent in them to use them. And Anyone out there who's got some sort of office job, or really any sort of job, right? Any job. doesn't matter what you do, blue collar, white collar. If you've been doing it for long enough, you've probably seen that starting to happen already. And that's not going to stop where it is now. It's going to keep going. So look at Uber, right? Look at Airbnb. Now, the gig economy is controversial. It's born of necessity. It's born because, especially younger people, don't have the opportunities today that previous generations had. You know, there was a time when if you went to a four-year, there was a time when if you went to a four-year college, you got out, you graduated, you were guaranteed a good job right out of it. That's not true anymore. That's not true anymore. That hasn't been true in some years now. You get out of college, people are, you know, they're they're struggling with student loans. They're winding up in huge amounts of debt because they can't find the good work that existed before. And by the way, some of that is technology's fault. That's not the the focus of our podcast today, but some of that is indeed the fault of technology, and a lot of people are upset about that. Um, so the gig economy has been born out of this need for for more creative ways to be employed. But So it's a good thing. It's a great thing in that regard. But, it, of course, it can't be low paid. You may, in fact, have to work long hours to make a real living. There are no benefits. You may be exploited by certain companies. Certainly Uber has been a big uh, big deal in terms of being accused of exploiting its drivers and, and treating them badly for, for low pay. So these are controversial things about the gig economy. But here's the big question. As more jobs become like this, because more jobs will become like this, do companies start hiring people with lower wages and no benefits because they can? Or do existing jobs simply become easier because of technology? Because that's always been the dream. That's been the promise, right? That you're not working long hours with lower wages. You're working fewer hours at the same wages and technology makes your job and your life easier. So is that what happens or do we have more exploitation? Well, I can tell you this. Traditionally, it hasn't gone in the good direction. Technology was supposed to make our jobs easier. 
It was always supposed to do that. But instead, it's just made our jobs different. I'm old enough to remember a time when we would talk about, you know, working an hour or two a day because computers would do it all for us. And of course, that hasn't happened. More work is just added. And, you know, you see the stock market booming. That's potentially one reason why, right? Companies are becoming more efficient, but employees aren't benefiting. That's been a trend in the economy. And I don't expect that trend not to continue. I don't expect that to stop. So think about what your life may be like in the future. Will it be easier? Probably not. Maybe, but probably not. But it's sure to be different. And somebody is going to cash in. TV recently. You know what 4K is? It is basically a higher pixel resolution for your TV. Years ago, we started to have HD TVs, high definition. 4K is the next evolution of that. The picture is clearer. It's sharper. But here's the fascinating thing. When I watch my 4K TV, which is 43 inches, and I watch it at a moderate distance, I can't necessarily, when watching it from that distance, see the difference between the picture on that TV and my old TV, which was just regular HD. There are more pixels, the picture is clearer, it's sharper, but I can't necessarily see the difference. Now, if you go to any big box store, like a Best Buy or a Target or something like that, you'll see a fancy display of TVs with all these, these, amazing things they're advertising. You'll see curved TVs. You'll see HDR TVs. You'll see 4K TVs. These mean different things, which we'll talk about later, I promise. But what is their impact on you? Are they actually going to improve your viewing experience? And it gets to the heart of technology and Are these improvements that we're seeing too, and we're always going to see improvements, but are these improvements always going to be useful to everyone? Is 4K video worth it? Should you go out and buy a 4K TV as opposed to the old HD one you have now? Well, that's a complicated question, and it's a question we don't have time to address right now. That's why we're going into a lot more depth about it on next week's show. Thank you so much for listening, everyone, as always, on this Wednesday. I hope you enjoyed the show. I certainly enjoyed doing it. We'll be here next week. Could be Tuesday. Could be Wednesday. Who knows? It's a surprise. Keep checking. Keep checking. There will be, though, I can promise you, no matter when it happens, more news and more commentary, more talk about technology in New England, from New England. Don't miss it. My name's Steve Tushankel. Courage. Queen